Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, a piece-by-piece, episode-by-episode exploration of the winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, with hosts Andrew Grenade and David Thurmeyer. Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, episode 40, where we're traveling back to 1982 and the 36th winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, Roger Sessions, for his Concerto for Orchestra. Dave? <laughs> Roger Sessions. So we talked about him before because he did win a special citation from the Pulitzer. This is his first actual win. So what are your experiences with Roger Sessions? You know, I was thinking a lot about this because uh, what I've come to is that Sessions is one of those people who you've heard a lot about, but probably haven't heard a lick of his music. That is exactly you. right. <laughs> <laughs> He's always in the, the great pantheon of 20th century American composers. He knew everybody. Mm-hmm. He was associated with everybody, uh, had big uh, student and famous students. Very famous students. Yeah. Many uh, who won the Pulitzer Prize. Correct. Correct. Uh, was very involved and uh, yeah, but his music is not, not performed and I not taught. And oh, I tried to think of in preparing for this. Yeah. It's like, I want to re- revisit my favorite sessions. <laughs> and literally I hit a blank wall. The only piece I remember ever studying was the black maskers. That's the only thing. That's yeah. the only piece in grad school. I remember ever studying of his. Yes. But you're right. We talk about them all the time. The Roger sessions, Aaron Copeland concerts yeah. in the 1920s and thirties. I mean, th- th- he's a name that we talk about. He is. But we don't play his music at all. Not at all. And the, especially this year, this coming in 1982, what a strange person. This, it's like we're 40 years too late it's or something. It's very strange. He really should have been winning in the, in the 1940s. A long time ago. Yeah. yeah. So Back with William Schumann. He's yeah. that generation of composer. Absolutely. Absolutely. And as you helpfully pointed here, uh, pointed out, he was 85 when he won. He died in 1985 and was born in 1896 and Brahms was still alive. So <laughs> Yeah, that's a not only a long life, but it also shows just how... I mean, it really is kind of anachronistic that he's winning a Pulitzer in 1982. Yeah. Of all the composers who could have possibly won, Roger Sessions seems an outlier. I mean, they had already, it's been 10 years since they gave him a special citation thinking, well, Roger will never win a Pulitzer. Right. right. <laughs> so it's, it's very strange. Felt like a little, this week felt a little bit like a time warp. Yeah, it really me. did. Yeah. Well, maybe because of that, we should tell the story. Telling the story. All right, I want to start with a really great quote that I wanted to get. I put this in there because I want to get your reaction. Okay. Uh, so this is from a doctoral dissertation called Reconsidering America's Modern Composers, 1940-1970, <laughs> just talking about those composers of the early kind of Pulitzer, mm-hmm. was people like Sessions. And the author argues that Sessions' rapprochement, favorite word, with vestigial tonality and nascent 12-tone thinking was too aesthetic a position for populists like Aaron Copeland and too regressive for serialists like Babbitt. Whoa. What do you think about that? That he's kind of... An iconoclast. Yeah, that he's not traditional enough for those composers like Aaron Copeland. Right. He's not popular enough. He's not tonal enough. But he's also not hardline modernist <laughs> enough for people like Babbitt that he's just in this wilderness. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I would have to claim ignorance because I don't know enough of his music. But from what I know about him, he's much more on the side of Babbitt with oh, absolutely. 12-tone, yeah. serialist. This piece, is, I think, is serial from what I was able to mm-hmm. determine about it. 
So he seems much more of the academic, heavy, intellectual, yeah. I mean, teaching at Princeton and that type of school than the Copeland school, even though they were friends and got along. So too regressive. I, ooh, I just <laughs> love that quote. I know. I don't know. That's pretty interesting. What do you think? About well, I think it's interesting. I, the reason I want to put this in here is because it kind of, to me, summarizes one of the things that, going back to where we started, that no one listens to sessions anymore. No. That you can't pigeonhole him. So with Copeland, we go, oh, he's nationalist. There, we've got a pigeonhole. We can talk about him in class. Oh, Babbitt, he's modernist and serialist. Okay, we can pop him in that category. Sessions really kind of sits in between. I mean, he doesn't sit in, in the big meta narrative of American musical history that's been developed to this point. He doesn't have a place. No, no. I mean, where does he go on the shelf? Where do you file him? And I think that's part of the hmm. issue. And the other issue is, uh, according to the New York Times, Alan Cozen of the New York Times, uh, in his obituary, said Sessions did little to promote performances of his recordings of his works, uh, even as he developed considerable recognition among his colleagues. So he's a composer's composer. He's a composer's here. composer. Yeah, that that makes sense. We've seen a few people like that in our mm -hmm. winners. Uh, thinking of somebody who I would lump with Sessions would be Donald Martino, who oh, was absolutely. the opposite, though, who was kind of annoyed that <laughs> people weren't listening and playing his music much more. Uh, but it's the same kind of aesthetic, that mm -hmm. kind of intellectual sound. But... Uh, yeah, for the composer. And I think there was a quote, maybe it's in this uh, document that we have here or somewhere else, but I saw that Sessions, his music, he didn't want it to be appealing on a first listen. You right. had to really, it was like an onion. You had to get down to the, the innards of it. and Like it, Martino, I mean, going back like to Martino, that conversation yeah. we had. Yeah, so it, the, the interesting things about the pieces in his music reveal themselves the more mm -hmm. you study and more you listen. So, uh, yeah, I guess that's... He doesn't want music that makes your ears and lie back in an easy chair, <laughs> no. according to Charles E. No Ives. sugar plum ears <laughs> here right. for Roger Sessions. So uh, it's, yeah, he was very much an academic and teaching at Princeton and uh, California, Berkeley, which I think is also kind of interesting. Mm -hmm but also a theorist too. So he follows yeah. in the tradition of some other Pulitzer winners we've had who are academics too. He wrote a book called Harmonic Practice, I think. So much like Piston. Yeah, like Piston. Piston or Hansen. They wrote these uh, theoretical texts too. So he was very interested in the whole analytical side of music too. But that also puts him in that generation, that same generation right. that he should have won in the 40s and the 50s because that's when those composers were winning. That's when they were kind of at their zenith. Mm -hmm. But those composers are also much more nationalist. Yes. And he was not. He was not interested in nationalism at all. <laughs> no, no. So no Americana. Although no. I guess when we talk about the piece, I heard some faint whispers of oh, interesting. <laughs> syncopation. And uh, I don't know if I wouldn't say jazz, but at least, at least some recognition of rhythm, yeah. American rhythms. Uh, but yeah, you're right. It, and I, I don't know of any of his, when I looked at his works list, it's all just very abstract mm -hmm. sonata, concerto, very European type names. So it's yeah. a, a, not no Appalachian Spring or Rodeo or any of that. He also, like you mentioned, was an important pedagogue. Uh, and so we can talk about some of his important students, including the next winner of the Pulitzer Prize, Ellen Taft Zwillick, yeah. was one of his students. Mm-hmm. Vivian Fine, David Diamond. John Harbison, I mean, all also these another winner soon to winner. come. 
Yeah, so very distinguished uh, list of students. So in that way, is also very much like of a previous generation with Piston, who had right. many famous students and winners. So very, very interesting why, you know, we'll, we'll find out when we get to the jury reports. Uh, why now? Maybe was the question yeah. that I kept thinking about. Well, let me read you one last quote. This was a quote from Roger Sessions, writing to Aaron Copeland, in which he was talking about this whole idea. So we I can kind of contrast him to Martino, like you were saying. Martino railed against the fact that no one listened to him and people were, you know, <laughs> wanting to e- easy music. Rubes. And, right. Yeah, they don't know. This is what Sessions had to say about the same idea about do you go after recognition or do you just focus on pleasing yourself as an artist? And he said, an artist must learn, this is to Copeland, an artist must learn to do without encouragement or recognition, it seems to me, for two reasons. The first is the obvious one, that he can't ever be sure of having it. It is the most uncertain thing in the world, and fortune is at any moment likely to change, not in the long run, of course, but certainly in the space of an artist's lifetime. Second, because experience, both in the past and the present, offers proof sufficient for anyone that is essentially irrelevant. Bizet died, after all, because of his disappointment at the failure of Carmen, which is not exactly an unpopular work now. I simply think it is unwise to raise false hopes of expectations in the young or false standards. For a composer who goes in primarily for success generally gets it, given a reasonable amount of talent, temporarily. Hmm. Okay. So, when I die, I'll be recognized. That's basically what he seems to be saying. They'll see how great I was. Don't care about it. Just go in and do the work and focus on the work. (laughs) Please yourself. Right. So, you live your most authentic, true, artistic life. And if you, uh, as Charles Ives' father, George E. Ives said, that you know you don't want your family to starve on your dissonances. <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> you know you just yeah. uh, you just have to do your thing, and yeah. so I guess that makes sense. But it's easy, to, of course, it's easy to say that when you're like Martino and Sessions, when you have plush academic right. gigs at Ivy League schools that you know you, you can write. Well, it, it goes along with the whole Babbitt again. Babbitt's going to come up in a little bit here today too. Uh, but it's the Babbitt idea of who cares mm-hmm. if you listen and the university as laboratory for the composition that you want to write. Yeah, I still think Session was going in that direction. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he wasn't thinking of it as a laboratory. No, that's uh, right. But it is easier when you're not having to put food on the table with your compositions that you can compose on the side, but your bread and butter is the teaching. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, let's look at that composition and see what's going on behind the notes. <laughs> Behind the Notes. All right, Andrew. So when you think of concerto for orchestra, what do you think of? What? Bela Bartok. Of course. Like, of course. That's the, the first thing I think of. Archetypal example. Right. Yeah. And in that piece, it's pretty clear. Bartok, it's five movements, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and each movement focuses on different parts of the orchestra. And it's yeah. pretty clear. Uh, you've got the great bassoon duets. You've got all the different the flutes and woodwinds. This piece is different in a lot of ways, I think, than that. Uh, it's one big 15-minute mm-hmm. movement. And I don't know about you, but I, when I was listening to it, it didn't have any demarcations particularly. It was kind of all happening. Well, it is in three movements. It's kind of an ABA. And you can, I mean, you can hear when it switches to the lento, the middle section. I mean, you can hear that movement. And there is a return 
of the opening material when you return back again yes. in the third movie. I mean, so you can hear those There's kinds of form. things. There's yeah. form. You can you can and it's audible form. Mm-hmm. It's not like a lot of Babbitt since we're no. talking about him <laughs> where you're struggling to hear the form. You can hear the form very clearly. Oh yeah. Um, but it's not like you're going, oh, here's the great moment for the flute choir, and here's the great moment for the percussion. I mean, you don't get that at all. No, no. And this was written for the Boston Symphony Orchestra, and uh, Serge Kusevitsky was the former director and how important it was in his life, and how the Boston Symphony gave him premieres of his works. And he said, I wanted to pay tribute not only to the orchestra as a whole, but also to its various groups. And then he goes into the... The details about it, but for me, it you know, it, it didn't have like we say here sharp, distinctive sections. It yeah. was all kind of a big span, uh, and no, and the strings, strangely enough, were kind of not a huge part of it. No, they really weren't. I mean, they never even have a big section where you're like, oh, it's the strings. Yeah. But what's interesting, what you're talking about, just kind of the continuation, is like every analysis I read of sessions talked about line. Yes. This is this is his thing. Yes. Is that he's all about long gestures, long lines that just unspool over 15 minutes. And that's how it the experience of listening to it, that's how it felt. Yes. Like there was never a moment where I was like, and now I can rest. It was the line just keeps going. Yeah. It never stops. It never stops. Even in the slow section. Even in the slow section. Yeah. It's very European in that mm-hmm. way. I think it Brahmsian or this constant developing variation or it's a constant seems, churn. Yeah, churn, a constant Fortspinung or something. It's always always churning compared to some of our other composers where you have real obvious yeah. uh, motives and things. Uh, a couple of moments I did like or noticed uh, the there's like a two note da 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 motive in the percussion that comes back a lot. That was something. Uh, the opening really reminded me of one of our favorite composers. Sounded a lot like Carl Ruggles. It did. <laughs> I was like Sun Treader. It sounded What's like going Sun on? Treader. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I felt that too. And yeah, and and Ruggles also viewed himself as a European, like hmm. influenced by Schoenberg and that style uh, more than an American style. So I could see the the Schoenbergian element in this music and the kind of just extreme extremes. Well, and then there was also, I mean, he doesn't highlight individual sections the way like Bartok does, but what he does do is play with some really beautiful timbres yes. and get some really gorgeous sections. So I just want to play one section that will give you a sense of over 30 seconds, <laughs> the fact that it doesn't stop. It gets to some of that syncopation that you were talking about, mm. but then also some of the really beautiful um, moments that are happening just in terms of the orchestral colors. so hard to excerpt that because it, <laughs> it just kind of keeps going. But I think of those 30 seconds, you hear almost every instrument in the orchestra yeah. highlighted for even just three notes. And that's a lot of what you get over the course of the piece. Mm-hmm. And so that it almost has a Webern or a Klangfarben mm, melody type does. of orchestration to it with yeah. things 
like the jewels glistening yeah. uh, in and out instead of having that line of in one instrument carrying through. It is, yeah. it is like that broken up. Yeah, for me, I was trying to figure out how I could describe it. And the best way I could come to describe it, have you been to Disney World, Disneyland or any of... I have been to Disney World. Right. I lived in Florida, so... Oh, that's right. I yes. that. So, mm-hmm. you know, when you're in line at Disney World and you're going through this long line that seems like it will never stop and it keeps going. But along the way, it's all thematically related to whatever ride you're going to get to. So you get That's a little right. flash of this, little flash of this, little flash of this that keeps you entertained until you get to the big climax, which is just the ride. That's kind of how I felt listening <laughs> to this piece is there is a big climax at the yes. towards the end. It's very satisfying musically. And you get these little flashes of motives that uh, keep coming back and recurring. And it all f- works together, but it also feels kind of like it goes on for a very long time. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, that's a really good analogy. Good way to look at it. Sort of signposts along yeah. the way of what's coming. So is it a cumulative form piece? I don't or? think it's a cumulative no. form piece. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, definitely not. But I do think that the uh, it is working in a musical logic towards a satisfying conclusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very, very much so. I think it's very logical is a good way to put it. Yeah, extremely logical. Yeah. And you can tell there's a, an active musical intelligence behind it. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, should we uh, see what people thought about this? Let's do. Hit or miss? All right. So as always, we go to the jury reports. Uh, And so from March 19th of 1982 is the jury report. By the way, this piece was premiered uh, by the Boston Symphony with Seiji Ozawa, which is the only recording I could find of it. That's the only one I found, yeah. Yeah. And it was the first half was this, and then the second half was Beethoven 9. Wow, that's a <laughs> what a heavy that's a program. heavy program. <laughs> yeah, what a very very heavy program. Uh, so, the nominating jury in music enthusiastically and unanimously recommends Roger Sessions Concerto for Orchestra be awarded the prize. This excellent composition uh, is most deserving. It is an orchestral work of great force and energy, of consummate craft and formal design. Well, we've said that's that. That's correct. A work of passionate sweep and emotional depth. It is a work at once severe and moving, Hmm. containing the uncompromising linear complexity and contrapuntal richness that is typical of his style. Oh, this is tracking very well here. Yeah, absolutely. It's a work whose inner life, articulated by Session's expert and personal orchestral stamp, will continue to reveal its subtlety and artistic strength through repeated hearings, just like he wanted. Yeah. Yeah. And then finally... uh, There's a quote from Andrew Porter who said it was the most distinguished composition of the year without a doubt. Uh, And we of the music jury who examined many more new works uh, have reached the same conclusion. In fact, our conclusion is so decisive that we feel impelled to contravene the Pulitzer Prize's unusual procedures and demur from submitting a second or third choice. So we don't know who else Hmm. was considered. Yeah. So, which is unusual because they had started, yeah, exactly publishing those and putting them out, and yeah, but not not this year, not this time. So they enthusiastically nominate Roger Sessions. So who are the members of the committee? Well, it won't be much of a surprise. Richard Warnick was the chair. Okay, Charles Warrenen, and Dominic Argento. So Argento is kind of the wild card in there. The other two, I yes. can see them. 
very much appreciating Roger Sessions and saying, it's Roger's time. It's Roger's time. Yeah, and it even says here, all three jurors are Pulitzer Prize winners in music. They are. So there you have it. Interesting. And then we also have a special citation that I will hold off on. Yes, we'll have to get to that special we'll citation because it's yes. really fascinating. Yep. Well, I have a wonderful quote that I want to read to you about Sessions winning. So George Sankas, who was one of his students, uh, talked to him, called him on the phone, mm. And this is what he said in a, a later review he did that Sankas wrote about um, the publication of Roger Sessions' correspondence. Uh, this is what he reported. So it's secondhand. Okay. Okay. <laughs> what Sessions said um, when he heard about the Pulitzer. He said, when I got off the phone with them, I immediately told my wife that I had won the Pulitzer Prize. She asked me how much money it was. <laughs> when I told her, she said, oh, goody, now we can have an extra bre- egg for breakfast every morning. <laughs> What a humble guy. Huh? <laughs> I just love what that shows just about Sessions, that he did not have the ego about this. No, for him, no. it was fine. I got the, the award. Thank you for the you know, the extra money and the recognition. That's a great quote. Extra egg. Extra egg yeah. for, morning, <laughs> for breakfast. <laughs> I don't know. The prize money probably buy a lot of eggs. A lot of eggs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, covering the premiere by the BSO... Um, in the New York Times, Edward Rothstein had this to say about the piece. Said, Roger Sessions' Concerto for Orchestra, for which the composer won the Pulitzer Prize this year, seemed an engaging work with its New York premiere, one that would require a performance with more coherent attention to the tension in its lyrical lines in order to have its effect. Mm. So again, seeing the line, the line. Yep. he didn't think that it had that great uh, of an effect. John Rockwell, though, discussed it when it was performed at Tanglewood by the BSO. And he said... Um, Mr. Sessions is a difficult composer, <laughs> difficult to perform and difficult to enjoy. This concerto, which he says is meant to showcase the orchestra and hence might seem to recall the brasher, lighter kind of 20th century orchestral concerto, is indeed a more accessible score than some by Mr. Sessions. It avoids his more turgid <laughs> textures that may partly be due to the credit of what seemed like a clear and careful performance by Mr. Ozawa and the orchestra. And it contains moments of affecting lyricism and abrupt drama. The final pages which strive for real tragic grandeur and end in a fading imitation of religiosity are genuinely moving. But then continue. On a first hearing, at least, the impression remains that Mr. Sessions is trapped by a borrowed musical language. Mm. Time after time, the voices of Schoenberg and Berg seem to intrude, freighting Mr. Sessions' music with the dated echoes of Viennese expressionism, which... I think yeah. it's actually a, a, a spot-on yeah. discussion. It is. It is. So, interesting. I mean, it's uh, 85 years old at that point. I'm sure he didn't expect... To win the Pulitzer, absolutely Yeah, not. to win. So, I mean, I guess it's, it does cap off his long career. Well, it's also interesting because he's the only composer to win a special citation from the Pulitzer and then go on to receive the regular Pulitzer Prize in his lifetime. Do you remember what year that was when he got the special citation? So he won the special citation in 1974. So, you know, eight years earlier, he had won the special citation uh, at that point in his late 70s. (laughs) And then here he goes on. Uh, But it's really fascinating that the uh, only other people to ever do that are Rodgers and Hammerstein. Mm -hmm. They got a special citation for um, Oklahoma and then actually won the Pulitzer for South Pacific. So Sessions and Rodgers and Hammerstein. Boy, can (laughs) you think of two more opposed? (laughs) Really, really fascinating. But he's the only one in music itself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, speaking of special citations, say, you got to tell you got to you've put that out there. I did. I dangled that carrot. We do have another winner here. 
the nominating jury and music enthusiastic. They were very enthusiastic this year and unanimously recommends that Milton Babbitt be awarded <laughs> a special citation in musical composition. He's one of the seminal musical minds of our time and goes through all of it. We note that it has been nearly a decade since a similar recommendation has been made to For our Roger current Sessions. winner yeah. and feel it is time that Milton Babbitt's work be recognized in a, in a manner commensurate with his accomplishments. So we award a special citation. Again, it makes sense given this committee, Warren and Wernick especially yeah. were serial composers. So. I'm sure they looked at it and thought Milton Babbitt will never win a Pulitzer. Yep. Yep. So let's make sure that he gets a special citation for his life in music. Exactly. exactly. And it also makes sense to do it when Roger Sessions is winning. Yes. Oh, that's a perfect combination. So yeah. It makes sense. All right. So Dave, hit or miss, <laughs> moment of truth. Well, so I tried with this piece. I did listen to it about... Strangely, made good background music when I was working. That's I was not sort of, strange. It, no, it, okay, no, it's not strange. I would go in and out. I had it run yeah. about four or five times while I was doing some things, and I will say it grew on me a little bit. Uh, but I think I agree with the the with Rockwell with the reviewer that it's just a little too. I don't know. I've heard too many pieces like this before, mm -hmm. and it, it went on too long so i don't think i'll be reaching for it again so yeah. it'll be a miss for me yeah how about you uh you know this is yeah, a miss for me <laughs> i know of course, of course. <laughs> had no question oh no no i mean like i said i think the the conclusion the climax is is very satisfying musically um but to the effect of when i listen to it again well i'll just tell you that i had it on <laughs> uh you know it was playing on my computer it cycled and was playing again. I didn't even notice that it had stopped and restarted. I thought it was just the same thing continuing. I was like, this piece is a lot longer than I thought it was. So that's my experience. Yeah, I can't disagree with, <laughs> with that. Roger that's, Sessions. Yeah. I will fully say this is a fantastic, fantastically constructed piece. I can see that analyzing it might really kind of, you know, tickle those neurons yeah, to put that yeah. together. Um, is it something I want to listen to again? I don't think I'll be reaching for it either. No, no. And sadly, it doesn't really make me want to go check out more of Sessions music. Yeah. Uh, I, I, If you're a listener and you think we are completely missing it and there's a piece we need to hear, let us know. But uh, I, this this didn't do it. Didn't for, especially, it's, it's very anachronistic for mm -hmm. its time and that maybe our, we've been conditioned now to hearing other types of winners. Well, this is coming out at the same time as Grand Pianola music. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. it really is. <laughs> yeah, that's true. In a and different world. A very different world. So, oh, well, congratulations to Uncle Milty and Roger Sessions for their win here. And so that's it for this episode of Hearing the Pulitzers. As always, you can find more about our project at our website, hearingthepulitzers.com. We will also find links in a short biography where you can read more about Roger Sessions. Also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at H Pulitzers for links between episodes and be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to help people find the show. Finally, join us next episode where we discuss the first female winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, Ellen Tafswillick, and her first symphony. Until then, keep listening. Keep listening.